Did you look up the instructor in advance? Read her bio, uh, do some research about where she studied, what certifications she holds. Anybody? Let's show of hands. No. Most of us don't care all that much about the credentials of our group fitness instructor because what she's asking of me is minimal risk, minimal reward, right? If the instructor isn't good, oh well, I wasted an hour of my life, I'll go to a different class next time. Now let's say you show up at a new group fitness class and once you get in the doors, all the lights go out. The instructor says you have one minute to decide whether you're staying before the door is locked behind us. If you choose to stay, I can promise you that you will never again wear the clothes you're wearing now because they'll be ruined by sweat and blood. You'll experience the most painful hour of your life outside of maybe childbirth. But I can also promise you that this hour will do wonders for your heart, your lungs, and your muscles that you didn't even know were possible. What do you do? <laughs> Some of you are like, I'm out. I'm sprinting for that door so fast. But maybe some of you are like me. The thought going through my mind when I envision that invitation, I'm thinking, who is this person and what are her credentials, right? Like, I don't want to upend my life for the misguided enthusiasm of a crazy person. But if this is like an ex-Navy SEAL instructor who is the world's foremost expert in human physiology, I'm at least intrigued, Right? That imagined group fitness scenario is something like where the disciples find themselves, I think, at the end of Mark chapter 8. Would you turn there with me if you haven't already? The end of Mark chapter 8, beginning of Mark chapter 9. Scan back with me over the last half of Mark chapter 8. Let's refresh our memories about what's been happening. In this section of Mark's gospel, Jesus has been opening the eyes of his disciples. We keep coming back to that every week as this, this section of the gospel is is bookended by healings of blind men. It's all about opening their eyes. These closest friends and followers of Jesus, are, they're just starting to see what's really going on in a spiritual sense. So let me paraphrase the interactions that they've just had with Jesus. You can see all this at the end of chapter 8. I'm just condensing so we grasp the effect of the back and forth that's just taken place. Jesus says to them, who do you think I am? And Peter responds, well, you're the Messiah. Jesus, bingo, well done. Disciples, yes, this is awesome. Jesus, also I'm going to be killed. Peter says, no, 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 Jesus, that's not right. Jesus says, Peter, your mind is not set on God's priorities, but on human priorities. I am going to be killed. And also, any of you who still want to follow me, it's time to say goodbye to the only you you have ever known. It's time to pick up your own electric chair and drag it along so we can all carry our instruments of death to the place we're going to die. That's the end of chapter 8. You see why I'm saying that to the disciples, Jesus may seem a little like the fitness instructor who escalates the commitment way beyond what anyone expects? I mean, some of them had to at least be thinking, if not saying to each other, Hey guys, Jesus is great, right? We, we all know that, but are we all 100% sure that we're really ready to set out on a death march with him? And it would be understandable if that's how some of you reacted to Jesus' words last week. Like, whoa, I'm a, I'm a Christian and all, but religion is a 
60 to 75 minutes on a Sunday morning type thing for me. I mean, I mean, and that's only if something better doesn't come up. I mean, come on, I'm not some kind of radical here, right? Christianity is a nice add-on to my life. No need to make it more than what it is, though. Yet, here are Jesus' words, end of chapter 8. And this is far from the only place where he demands such complete allegiance. So, if Jesus demands that his followers give our whole selves to him without reservation, and the Bible says repeatedly that he does demand just that, and if he insists that instead of adding him onto our existing lives, that we instead rebuild all new lives with him as the throbbing heartbeat at the center of it all, and again, the Bible does say that he does insist on just that, then, then, then who exactly is this guy, Jesus? That question suddenly really matters. In fact, there may not be a question that matters more. We have, we have access, don't we, to a lot of compelling teachers and gurus on YouTube these days. Am I going to follow any of them off a cliff just because they say there's something great waiting for me at the bottom? No way. What gives Jesus the right to demand that I lay down everything I treasure most for him? At the end of our time together today, if, if I've done my job, we will have seen who Jesus is, and you'll have a chance to decide whether you think he has the right to demand that you give your life to him. Here's how the passage works out. The themes of suffering and glory run through this passage side by side, parallel tracks, paradoxically so. We've got a promise of fulfillment and a clarification regarding this suffering and glory. Promise, fulfillment, clarification. First, the promise. The promise is that some will see the glory even before they taste suffering. That's verse 1. Some will see the glory even before they taste suffering. Look at that verse 1 with me again. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So there's a seeing of glory and a tasting of death here in verse 1. But remember, this isn't just an abstract reference to death. Jesus has just been talking to them about being willing to lose their lives for him and the gospel. So this isn't out of nowhere to them. We don't want to over-psychologize what biblical characters were thinking and feeling, but I think we can assume that those weren't pleasant words to hear. As the disciples imagined powerful people hunting them down because of their association with Jesus, that couldn't have been a soothing thought. But in his tender love for them, in comes Jesus with this word of assurance in verse 1. Yes, there will be death, but some of you will get to see the glory that awaits you before that death comes. In other words, a few of you will get to preview the kingdom's power before everyone gets to experience it in its fullness. It's like a little glimmer of hope. And this reminds me just a little of a parenting tactic that we used for a few weeks. Now, I'm not advocating this. Okay, I need to say this off the bat. I don't know if it's good. It may very well be bad for kids. Maybe you'll tell me why we've harmed our son by doing this. I'm just telling the story, okay? We had a hard time for a while getting one of our boys to stay in his room at night. He would wake up in the middle of the night, get lonely, understandable, age-appropriate, come ask to climb into our bed where he'd keep us up the rest of the night by kicking us in his sleep, right? So we decided to tape a lollipop to the wall in his room. This was the deal we made. See this lollipop? Looks so good, right? If you get through the whole night without leaving your room for any reason besides going potty, you'll get this lollipop in the morning. A week or two of that, and we broke the pattern. Hopefully we didn't harm him in some other way by doing that. But 
better or worse, here's what that illustrated to me. Something very hard, staying in my room when I'm lonely, becomes much easier when I can see a little glimpse, at least, of the glory, so to speak, that awaits me. If I can see with my own two eyes right in front of me. Now, do parents have the right to demand that their children remain in their rooms even without any promise of a lollipop? Sure. Yes. Similarly, the God of the universe and human flesh, identified in these passages as the Son of Man who sits at the right hand of the Ancient of Days, he has every right to demand our full submission without giving us any proof of the glory to come. How cool is it that he does graciously offer a preview of coming glory? to bolster our hope as we walk this way of suffering. Now, what is that hope? What is that glorious lollipop, so to speak, that he tapes up to our wall? What is Jesus saying that some of those standing in front of him are going to experience before suffering and dying? Look at the end of verse 1. He phrases it, the kingdom of God after it has come with power. That's what they're going to see. The kingdom of God after it has come with power. What is that? The kingdom of God is the domain of God's rule. It's wherever and whenever and in whomever God is recognized as king. That's his kingdom. Put differently, it's the future age of God's realized perfect rule breaking into the present sinful age. And at times, Jesus compares that kingdom to unassuming things like mustard seed that grows up into a big plant or a little bit of yeast that works its way through a batch of dough. Uh, Because the ordinary working of the kingdom is just like that. It's slow and quiet and unremarkable from a worldly perspective. But we can't forget that despite outward appearances that are unremarkable, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of incredible power. The power to change lives, the power to break addiction, the power to calm storms, the power to heal diseases, the power to raise the dead. I'm I'm speaking to a room full of people who know that power and have experienced that power in their lives and in the lives of those they love. Where God is ruling, there is power. In the age to come, that power won't be hidden anymore. It'll be fully on display, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But Jesus says, some of you standing here are going to get the curtain pulled back to see a glimpse of that hidden power even before you die for me. You're going to get to see the lollipop on the wall, so to speak, even before you go through the hard night staying in your bed. Now, if, as critics say, Jesus is speaking of his end-time return when he speaks about the kingdom of God after it has come with power, then he was wrong when he said this. Here we are 2,000 years later. All the people listening to him that day have died, yet he hasn't come back. But what reason is there to think that that the kingdom coming in power refers to his return? In reality, several features of this text including that the next verse ties itself very closely to verse 1 with the transition phrase, and six days later, all that suggests that Mark saw at least a partial fulfillment of Jesus' first one promise in these very next verses, 2 through 8. So let's go there now. Now that we've seen the promise that some will see God's kingdom coming in power, let's go with Mark to an example of that, at least a partial fulfillment of God's kingdom coming in power. The fulfillment is that three get to see a glorious display of who Jesus really is. Let's reread that, starting at verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. 
And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say. They were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. This is one of a handful of times in the Gospels when we see Jesus taking just these three, Peter, James, and John, into a pull-back-the-curtain type of experience. In this one, they get to meet Moses and Elijah, and they get to see Jesus like they've never seen him before. We could fruitfully explore this handful of verses from so many angles, but to zero in on what I believe is Mark's main point here, I want to draw your attention to the last two words, actually, in verse 8. Jesus only. Jesus only. I think this event happens, and I think Mark records it the way he does, so that Peter, James, and John, you and I, will be gripped by the realization it's only Jesus. He's in a class of his own. And you got to love Peter. He probably thinks he's expressing extreme reverence for Jesus when he says in verse 5, Let's put up three tents for the three legends in our midst. What higher honor could Peter assign to Jesus than to associate Jesus with Moses and Elijah? Peter can't picture anybody closer to God or more deserving of honor than those two, Moses and Elijah. Quick refresher on Moses and Elijah's stories in case it's just a bit fuzzy. Uh, Moses is the leader who brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt, Charlton Heston or Christian Bale, depending on which Exodus movie was watched in your generation. The Exodus, about 1,500 years before Jesus, was when the family of Israel is birthed as a nation. When God adopts one human family as his child, to use the language of Exodus 4, Moses, he's the prophet who takes three named people up with him to Mount Sinai or Horeb after six days to meet God in a cloud and to hear God's voice from the cloud. And it's such an experience of glory that when Moses comes down from the mountain, his skin is shining. Up there on the mountain, Moses receives directly from God the law code that will mark out Israel as God's distinct special people. And actually, Moses was so close to God that at the end of Moses' life, Deuteronomy 34 tells us that God himself buried Moses. And nobody ever found his grave. That's Moses. Elijah, the other ancient figure on the mountain with Moses in this story, is the prophet five or six centuries after Moses still a long time before Jesus, who attempted to call Israel back to the law of Moses that they had abandoned. So Elijah, you may remember, was living during the period when Israel was divided and ruled by wicked kings. It wasn't easy to be Elijah. Hated man. It's actually in the midst of a time of deep discouragement that Elijah meets God on Mount Sinai or Horeb, just as Moses had centuries earlier. They're the only two. He spends years being hunted down by King Ahab, and even more so by Ahab's wife Jezebel. Elijah suffers a lot, but when he reaches the end of his life, he doesn't die. God just takes him up. And so there's this association between Moses and Elijah that develops over the years with Jewish scholars using their names as stand-ins for the law and the prophets, Moses being the law, Elijah being the prophets that make up the Hebrew Bible together. And actually, in the very last words of the Old Testament, before God goes silent for 400 years and then Jesus is born, um, Moses and Elijah appear together. Here's, here it is, Malachi 4, 4 through 6. 
Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. Then Malachi goes right into this in the last words of the Old Testament. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. This passage led Jewish teachers in Jesus' day to believe that Elijah would return before the coming of Messiah. Peter, James, and John all knew this. They'd grown up on these stories. Can you imagine the reverence that they must have had for Moses and Elijah after their upbringing? It's hard to even suggest parallels in our experience. Like for you and I, I guess this would be like if you combine the national significance of getting to meet George Washington and Abraham Lincoln with the religious significance of getting to meet Martin Luther and Mother Teresa. I, I don't even know. Those, any names that we could come up with fall short of what this would have been for them. Peter, James, and John, they're geeking out, right? They're terrified, verse 6. They don't know what to say. Peter fumbles for words. It gets off to a kind of cringy start in verse 5. It's good that we are here. James and John are probably like, dude, are you serious? It's good that we are here. And Peter starts reaching. He's trying to try to say something. Let's put up three tents for you three heroes so we can hang out here a long time. We can empathize with Peter's bumbling. His mind is being blown here. Like, could Jesus really be on the level of Moses and Elijah? Could they be like on, all on tier one? Yet the reality of Jesus' identity is even crazier than Peter's loftiest imaginings. After all, out of Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, how many of the three are transfigured here? Verse 2. Only Jesus. Do Moses and Elijah find their clothes turning whiter than anyone on earth could bleach them? Verse 3. What about when God speaks from the cloud in verse 7? Does he say, these three are my beloved sons. Listen to them. Singular. So when we read in verse 8, and suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. We've been primed by Mark to understand that comment as more than just his way of updating the headcount. There's theological significance here, namely, that even among the greatest religious figures in world history, Jesus stands alone. Moses and Elijah, great as they were, were only great insofar as they pointed to Jesus. Your favorite celebrity pastor, only great insofar as he points to Jesus. Now this is becoming a long second point, but I have to show you this before we move on because this is so cool. This whole event here has been framed to present Jesus as the true and better Moses. Maggie told us that earlier. Actually, that Jesus as true and better Moses started way back in chapter 1 of Mark's gospel with Jesus' baptism being framed to echo the Red Sea crossing, and with Jesus' calling of 12 disciples echoing the 12 tribes that came up out of Egypt, Mark's message has already been that Jesus is a new Moses creating a new Israel, or a reconstituted Israel, we should say, by faith. And if Jesus is the new Moses creating a reconstituted Israel, our passage today is the Sinai moment. Take a look. This chart was created by one commentator, edited by another commentator, and then edited by me. So, not really original. Uh, commonalities between Moses on Mount Sinai or Horeb and Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
Both passages have this time stamp. Mark never does this. He only does this one other time in his whole gospel. But he says after six days. Why? Because that's what it says in Exodus 24. Moses goes up with three named persons in Exodus 24. Jesus takes three disciples up on the mountain. Moses' skin shines. Jesus is transfigured and his clothes become radiantly white. God shows up in an overshadowing cloud. God shows up in an overshadowing cloud. A voice speaks from the cloud. A voice speaks from the cloud. But this isn't just Sinai 2.0, actually. This one's different in some ways. On Sinai, the law was the focus. On the Mount of Transfiguration, God directs the focus to a person. So the message then is transformed from what it was on Sinai, follow this law, to follow this man. Because he is the embodiment of the law, the right interpretation of the law. That was never said about Moses. Jesus, and only Jesus, is the way, the truth, the life. Israel's destiny, and in fact every human's destiny, is now predicated on what we all do with this one man. If you remember, that's what Jesus himself implied just six days earlier at the end of chapter 8. That our eternal destiny depends on whether we are willing to deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow him. I was talking to some high school guys the other day about their doubts. And I asked them, when has Jesus showed up for you? When maybe you're doubting or hesitant about following him. Like, of course, Jesus doesn't owe it to us to show up, but sometimes he does. So tell me about a time when he did show up in a way you couldn't deny and the experience strengthened you. They responded by talking about little signs they had seen along the way. When just the right song came on or somebody said just the encouraging word that they couldn't have known they needed to hear that day. Or they saw a billboard on a highway that spoke a message to them. And listen, I I don't want to discount those things at all. God can do whatever he wants. He can show up and encourage our hearts using any means that he wants to use. But after affirming to these young men that, hey, me too, I've had some of those experiences too. They've been super meaningful to me. I reminded them, this book is the greatest sign of all. Like in a passage like ours today, for example, we have rock solid, take it to the bank access to the experience, that mountaintop experience that was so transformative and confirming for Peter, James, and John as they sought to follow Jesus. And God is still using Mark's account of that experience today, this very morning, to do for many of us here in this place what he did for those three back on the Mount of Transfiguration, namely to pull back the curtain and show us the glory of Jesus. Have you caught a glimpse yet in his word of who he really is? All right, so I told you suffering and glory run side by side in this passage. And if you remember just a few verses earlier, Peter was cool with the glory part. His big hang-up was about the suffering piece. Like, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You don't, you don't have to suffer and die. And I don't know this for sure, but I'm trying to follow the flow of the passage here. And I'm wondering if this mountaintop experience gets those same old anti-suffering wheels turning again for Peter, James, and John. Like, if Jesus is even greater than Moses and Elijah... If he's the son of God, then maybe the whole suffering thing doesn't have to happen after all. That brings us to Jesus' clarification in verses 9 through 13. I think that's why he offers this clarification, that this display of glory has only emboldened Jesus to suffer. Look for that as I reread that. Starting in verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, 
why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. How is it written that the son of, man, of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. They continue to be stuck on the suffering part. Peter didn't like it earlier when Jesus first broached the subject clearly. Now Jesus says, hey, don't tell anybody about this until I rise from the dead. But of course, rising from the dead requires one to die. So they're talking to each other like, we don't get it. What's this about rising from the dead? I wonder if sometimes we pity these old-fashioned backwards people 2,000 years ago who were gullible enough to believe in someone rising from the dead because they didn't have the scientific knowledge that we have. But let's not forget, a person coming back from death was just as unbelievable to their ears as it is to ours. A hundred out of a hundred dead people that they knew were still in their graves. They didn't believe in people coming back to life. They did believe that everybody would be resurrected all at once at the end of history to face their eternal destiny. But they had no category for an individual rising from the dead or for a singular resurrection before the end of time. What they couldn't grasp, despite Jesus saying it plainly, was that his death and resurrection were the reason he had come. So they poke at this. Verse 11. Why do the scribes say Elijah must come first? In other words, Jesus, okay, if you're going to die and rise again, like you keep saying, if that's the key way the kingdom of God's going to come, well, the promise from Malachi 4, what about that? That says Elijah's going to return before the day of the Lord when all things are restored. So why hasn't Elijah come yet? Jesus answers, verse 12, hey, the scribes, they are reading Malachi 4 rightly. Elijah does come before the day of the Lord. But then Jesus goes on in verse 13 to say Elijah has already come. That condition has already been met. The new Elijah's name was John the Baptist, my cousin. And they did to him whatever they pleased, i.e. they just beheaded him in chapter 2 before this. But consider the last phrase, though, of verse 13. They did to Elijah whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Problem. Nowhere in the Hebrew Bible is there a prediction that upon Elijah's return, he'll be mistreated. Again, here's the only thing we have about Elijah's return. I'll send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day the Lord comes. He'll turn the hearts of parents to children and the hearts of children to their parents. Or else he'll come and strike the land with total destruction. Um, there's a suggestion here about possible rejection if you consider the or else. Um, but other than that, what does Jesus mean when he says they did to Elijah whatever they pleased as it is written of him? Most commentators think Jesus is referring to what's written in Scripture about Elijah's first coming, like the original Elijah's life. King Ahab was always trying to murder the first Elijah, and Ahab was spurred on by his evil wife Jezebel. What happened to John the Baptist, the second Elijah? He was killed by King Herod, spurred on by his evil wife Herodias. As such, John the Baptist has followed in the footsteps of Elijah. He did turn the hearts of parents and children and children to parents, but contrary to popular expectation of the second coming of Elijah, John the Baptist was ultimately rejected the way the first Elijah had been. There are implications then for how Peter, James, and John are supposed to understand Jesus' own identity. For example, if popular readings about the scriptures about Elijah are off base, then... 
Is it at least possible that the popular readings of the scriptures about the Son of Man are off base too? And that's what Jesus reminds them, sandwiched here at the end of verse 12. He says, and I'm paraphrasing, you're looking to these scriptures that say Elijah will come, and he did. That's great. But don't those same scriptures say that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So, so why do you keep resisting the fact that I'm going to suffer and be killed? Jesus presumably has in mind scriptures like Isaiah 53, written 700 years before his coming. It's familiar to many of you, but we can't read these verses enough. Think about this. 700 years before Jesus, Peter, James, and John grew up reading these verses. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet... We considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or sin of us all. Jesus keeps gently correcting their expectation. Hey, why are you expecting a conquering champion again when the scriptures portray a Messiah who saves by dying? Sometime after the events of Mark 9, looking back in hindsight, Peter, James, and John, they'd be able to see how central Jesus' suffering and death were to his mission. With the passage of time and the help of the Holy Spirit, they're able to ask questions like, okay, if this is the reconstituted Israel, and if Jesus is the new Moses, mustn't there be a new exodus? And there would be a new exodus. Jesus, Jesus exodusing from this life to go to a new life, taking with him all who have been joined to himself by faith. And that's why in Mark 9, Jesus' gaze is set on that destination ahead of him. In such a way that the glory of the transfiguration, it doesn't make him second guess the need for suffering. The suffering was always the point. His death was always the supreme way that he had intended to display his glory. It's the disciples' perceptions that are getting slowly shaped so that they increasingly perceive Jesus not as a king who's going to reign from a palace with a pointed finger giving commands, but rather as a king who reigns from a cross, receiving his children with outstretched arms. Suffering, glory, they go hand in hand for Jesus. So our big idea today is this. Because Jesus is clothed with glory, yet suffered and died for us, he is deserving of our complete trust. We see the glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, but as soon as they come down, Jesus is talking to them about the suffering that still is to come. Because Jesus is clothed with glory, yet suffered and died for us, he's deserving of our complete trust. If I walk into your fitness, fitness class and you're going to ask me to bleed, I'm going to need to know your credentials. You've just escalated this exercise class from an hour I tack on to my week to something that the other parts of my week will need to be built around. I'm not going to do that unless I have some reason to trust you. And friends, no one here should be willing to drop everything, deny themselves, and lay down their lives for a mere religious teacher. Don't do it even if he's a great religious teacher. 
Because even the most truly outstanding religious teacher has no right to require the remaking of our whole lives so that he becomes the central defining piece of our identities. That would be so unhealthy, so toxic, unless that teacher is actually God. And what we see on the Mount of Transfiguration is that what, what we couldn't even dare to consider a possibility is actually true. It's this Jesus. He isn't just a great teacher. He's not even just the greatest of all human teachers. He's the divine son of God, clothed with glory. He's the one before whom all of us will one day stand to give account. God in the flesh. So if you're here this morning and you haven't yet said goodbye to your old life, to start crafting a new life that's centered on Jesus, I want you to just think for a moment about that thing that you're life is presently centered on. Think about it. What is that thing? The thing that makes your life tick. The one thing that if this fell apart for you, your whole life would fall apart. What is that for you? Think about that. Now take that thing and imagine setting it up on that mountain alongside Jesus. Here's what's at the center of your life and here's Jesus who's glowing so brightly that you're starting to glow a little yourself. There's Jesus, robed in a shade of white that you didn't even know existed on this planet. He's there next to what you've based your life on. Which of these two is a more reliable foundation to set your life on? If you're going to risk it all, in other words, for one or the other, do you want to risk it on that? Or on the God of the universe in human flesh? And better yet, did this temporary, fragile thing ever die for you? Because... Jesus loved you so much that he did. And you can begin a new life with him even today if you respond to him in faith. If you have already set out on the way of following Jesus, maybe this is a reminder today. When you have one of those days like we all do, when you start to wonder if all this self-denial that Jesus calls for is really worth it, it is. You can take it to the bank that the one on the Mount of Transfiguration is powerful enough to keep his promises. And you could take it to the bank that the one who came down that mountain to die for you loves you enough to follow through on his promises. Let's trust him with our everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son Thank you for not just sending us a mere teacher to instruct us in the way to climb the mountain to get to you because we never would have been able to climb it. Thank you for sending your own son, God in the flesh, to die in our place, to pay the price that we could never have paid, to climb down that mountain to get to us when we could never get up to him. Help us to 